Welcome to TA1. Everything you want to know about adventure racing ends and some. And I am your legendary host, legendary Randy Erickson, or as I'm known in the uh, off-road racing circuit, um, the media man. Anyway, I'm back. Hope you missed me. Probably didn't. Um, had a great two weeks in uh, Baja, Mexico, down there with um, Campbell Racing and their uh, 4405 hammer truck. It was quite the deal. 50th uh, anniversary Baja 1000. 1,134 miles from Ensenada to La Paz. And um, I kept thinking the whole time and remarking how much like an adventure race it was. And although most adventure racers don't go 140 miles an hour. But... Um, the logistics, um, there's checkpoints, there's virtual checkpoints, um, you've got to get gear to pits, um, mostly fuel, tires, um, chase teams, you have your own chase team that fuel you and do mechanical and stuff like that, but also there are uh, for higher teams, so you have to take all your stuff to them. Uh, it's a pretty big deal. We had 20 in the team, uh, three drivers, three co-drivers, and the rest of us, um, chase crew, pit crew, media man. So it's uh, a little easier to see adventure racing. So in two days, we left Ensenada two days before the start, drove in 11 hours to San Ignacio, Drove the next day nine hours to San Joaquito. We set up. We waited 15 hours for the truck to come by. And he was there for about 10 minutes because they had to change a fuel filter. So, And we were on our way to another pit. pit um, and I was on my way to the finish in La Paz. And unfortunately, the truck broke. Not still not sure some sort of an electrical issue uh, took it out of the race, but really, really, really enjoyed the experience. Um, honestly, can't wait till next year, and maybe a few things before Baja coming up next year. It's hard to say. Well, uh, just got a lot of stuff going on, and then this nasty work thing keeps getting in the way. So. And even if I won the lottery, I couldn't quit because i got to finish the project, and it's another year. So um, I talked with uh, Brett and Annie, I don't know, a long time ago, three weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And uh, it was fun for me. I think they had a good time. And uh, here it is. So uh, hopefully we'll get back in the swing of things. If uh, you know anybody you think would be interesting for the show if you think you're interesting let me know that's uh especially this time of year i don't want to say it, it's um yeah, yeah it's a little bit harder to uh, find people to talk to since uh, we don't quite have any races going on and uh don't can't recap those but i imagine i'll find somebody if not start talking to truck racers and they'll have to change the name and get a whole new audience and maybe even make some money. No, that won't happen. 
I will say it was fun shooting with a team that has a couple of hundred thousand followers. I'd post a video and within an hour have 10,000 views. So that part I really, really like. Anyway, that's enough. Let's uh, get this going. It will be a long one because even though we're late, this is our traditional Thanksgiving show. And I think some of you know what that means. And the rest of you are in for a treat. So go fast, take chances, and um, talk to you next week. Bye. Hello? Oh, I hear somebody. Life is good. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be working. Okay, I, I, I'd like to say that, but we'll wait till we get about 10 minutes in, and we'll know that it's working for sure. Got it. So, I... Uh, it amazes me every time, you know. It's like, how hard would this been to do like five years ago? It, like impossible. So, I'm I'm a happy person. Yeah, the wonders of modern technology. Yeah, I I think that's why. Well, I don't know how adventure racers did it in the '90s and early 2000s. How did you find teams? How did you find races? How did you you know get it done? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I, I only did one race then, and it kind of found me, and so did my team. So, yeah. so yeah, you did uh, PQ. What, what year? Uh, I think it was two thousand three, two thousand four. The one that was uh, out here in the San Juan. Yeah. So, yeah, so you, they found you the uh, the uh, local knowledge. <laughs> What's they that? Found you who who had the local knowledge, right? Uh, well, somewhat for the paddling, it was it was actually a college buddy who got me onto the team. Yeah. Well, let's. Uh, we should start by, who are you? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to start. Well, I, for uh, a long time, I didn't bother, and I think well, people kind of like to know. You know, we won't keep it a mystery till the end of the podcast. <laughs> Uh, my name is Brent Molesbury, and I'm with the Quest Adventure Race team. Yeah. Oh, man. Randy, can you hear that loud beep? Yeah, it's not the- real annoying. So It's kind of annoying. For you? On this side. Yeah. Uh, sorry, these are my first words on the podcast. <laughs> annoying beep. You can introduce yourself. I'm Annie, and I'm on the Quest Adventure Race team. And I think congratulations are in order for you, too. Thank you very much. Oh yeah, uh, recently recently hitched. Thank yeah. you, Randy. You're welcome. And amazingly enough, you got married after you did Cowboy Tough. <laughs> <laughs> we we had a full three weeks to recover. Yeah, that's not bad. So, um, oh, where to start? You you guys are my favorite things. Your couple that raced together. You did worlds. Got a little history. Um. Okay, let's. How did you guys get started racing? Uh, I guess that's mainly my fault. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned, I did uh, Primal Quest when I was in the San Juan Islands and uh, was enjoyed that experience. That was my first ever adventure race. Our whole team was a team of newbies. None of us had ever done any adventure racing, and it's kind of a wonder if we even made it to the start line. Uh, and then we even managed to finish the race. So that was a really cool experience. And after that, 
someone I knew on San Juan Island approached me because they wanted to start doing an adventure race in the San Juans, but they didn't know that much about adventure mm-hmm. racing. And so they kind of met with me and he was like, Hey, we should do a race out here and you can kind of design the course and do all that. And I'll take care of the rest. And so I started directing, uh, the San Juan Island quest adventure race. And from that got more involved with adventure racing and wanted to do more races and has kind of spurred out from there to organizing more races. And then when Annie and I met, got her involved and her first ever adventure race was actually the San Juan Island quest. doing San Juan Island yeah. quest uh, as a team with my sister and my dad. And I'd never met his sister before <laughs> and I'd only met his father once. So adventure racing is really great for bonding. Well, I always say, you know, one day of adventure racing is like, like two months of normal life for people. Yeah, it brings it. You got your highs, your lows, your eating, your bathroom stops, the whole shebang. Sometimes you're sleeping. Yeah, your your all modesty goes out the window. You just, uh, yeah. I I tell the story of being with uh, I think it was Team Idaho at Expedition Idaho, who I'd never met, and after an hour, we were telling the most filthy jokes and stuff to each other. So. That's just the way it goes, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a, you figure out what your team culture is, and then you you're in it. Yeah. Um, was it nerve wracking racing with the family? It was. No, I wouldn't say it was nerve wracking. We had some parameters set um, because Brent's sister couldn't run, and his dad is his dad and so that is a bit of a governor on pace as well i um i i didn't have any huge responsibilities except the passport which i actually left somewhere (laughs) during the raid oops (laughs) so uh, yeah (laughs) um no but it was a great i mean it was a great day and i had definitely never done anything like that i my history with adventure racing is, it, like we said, it starts there, and I hadn't, um, I didn't have a ton of racing experience prior to um, prior to starting with Quest, and I did have a lot of adventure experience, but um, yeah, that was a new dimension to explore for sure. Yeah, it would. Um, okay, we jump around because that's the way I do it. So, Brett, when you did the first Primal Quest, if if you'd have known what you know, what you knew after it, would you have started? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, probably not. Um, I remember it was actually uh, Aaron Wren, who's on Team Dart. Mm-hmm. He got introduced to a couple of my teammates and met with them before the race. Uh, and he was introduced from some of the uh, Primal Quest staff. They were like, here, these guys are going to race, and they need some help, so meet with them. And he met with my teammate, Michael, and uh, afterwards he basically called the Primal Quest staff and was like, these guys are so clueless, they don't even know what they don't know. They need so much help. And her her response to Aaron was, well, then help them. And uh, that's that's what Aaron did. And he, he was a huge help getting us kind of – where we needed to go and, and to the start line and through the process. But yeah, I mean, we entered that thing so clueless about everything that uh, ignorance truly was bliss. And 
at the time, I don't know if we fully understood what we were doing, if we would have gone through with it. Yeah. But in the end, we were very glad we did. Well, I'm sure you were, but okay. Which was harder, getting to the start line or doing the race? <laughs> uh, for us, I think the race was a little bit harder okay. for our support crew because that one was supported. Mm. Uh, getting us to the start line, I think, was the biggest challenge for them for sure. Yeah. Uh, like my parents and uh, a couple other friends were up until like two in the morning before the race started, like pouring, you know, various protein mixtures into little Ziplocs after measuring four scoops out and making sure we had clothes packed and all that kind of stuff. So for the support crew, getting us to the start line was a major achievement in that in that race. Yeah. So you're one of the well, I shouldn't say one of the few people I've talked to that raced with support crews, but I don't think we've ever talked about it. What was it? What? And now, and, you, and you've done Cowboy Tough without, what's, how are they different other than the obvious ways? But so what, it's, yeah, what was it like with a support crew might be a better answer or question. Uh, I mean, with a support crew, there's, there's some huge benefits there because you're, you're spoiled. You know, you come into a transition area and your support crew is there to meet you. They're excited to see you. They've got, you know, hot food prepared for you. They've got a nice, dry, warm place for you to sleep already set up. So you literally, like, roll in, eat food. They're, like, you know, helping you take your clothes off and giving you new clothes. And then you go sleep, and while you're sleeping, they repack your bag for the next leg. And then you wake up, you eat more food, and then you just head out on the trail with a bag that's fully packed and ready to go. Hmm. Um, and I mean, during that race, we even had, you know, friends took our clothes and did laundry for us while we were racing. So we had, like, clean clothes to put on later in the event. Yeah. So in that in that sense, it was pretty phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. But, but then again, you had, like, four more, six more people to organize. So that's no no easy task. Yeah, well, we only had one full-time crew member, wow. uh, which was one of our uh, – my teammate Michael is his dad. And uh, a lot of people kind of came and went, and we had the benefit in that event of basically that race was in our backyard because yeah. we were based out of Washington here. And so people would kind of come and go. Um, you know, like one of, the, one of the other guys, his dad came up uh, to meet us at one of our transitions and rolled in with – you know, Dairy Queen double bacon burgers into the transition right as we got there and we had the food and then he went back home and worked for another couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's nice. I mean, it's when you did that, you know, with basically home court were, were people into it? Did you get locals coming? Cause I know when, when PQ was here in the, you know, Black Hills Badlands, um, it took a couple of days, but then all the locals kind of really got into it and were out there and looking at, you know, for the the local team and then everybody else. So, did did you have that, or was it a little harder to to track back then? Uh, they could track online, and so you definitely had you had some people following along and coming out to some of the locations for sure. A lot of the places we were at were pretty remote, yeah. so there wasn't real easy access. Although we did, you know, you'd run into people who were real serious dot watchers and cheering teams on like, you know, in the m middle of nowhere in the middle of the night, just come along and somebody would be there like, Hey, you guys are doing awesome. Good job. Are you team such and such? You're like, no. Oh, 
well, where are they? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And did you, would you get that? What's happening out there? And you're like, uh, we know what's happening five minutes ago and five minutes from now within a hundred yards yeah. of here. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's about, yeah. that's about it. They, they have, the spectators have a way better idea of what's going on because they can follow the dots than yeah. the actual editors typically do. Yeah. That, that that's kind of always my favorite. Somebody will email me like, "Hey, what's happening with team?" You know, and I'm like, uh, "I saw him three days ago." Yeah. <laughs> so you tell me. Yeah. So, um, what were your guys' background before adventure racing? Um, I had a career as a dancer before adventure racing, and. I sort of, that's always been my primary, or I guess all through my 20s, that was, you know, my instigator for traveling to any place, or um, it basically brought me to some amazing places, and it was also my daily movement practice and form of athleticism, and then when I stopped doing that, I was about the time that I moved to Bellingham, and um, was just seeking seeking movement in my day. And so I learned about all these sports that people do, like mountain biking and trail running. And I'd, I'd done cross-country and track in high school, but after that I got really serious about dance. Um, and so, so, yeah, that's what I did before adventure racing. And I still, of course, dance at every opportunity. <laughs> in yeah. <laughs> right. Well, Brett, you can you can sit down for a minute because I don't think I've ever talked to an ex professional dancer. <laughs> so, so what kind of what kind of dance? Well, I was trained in ballet, um, but that is a pretty difficult uh, field to be successful yeah. in, and so I ended up going to college and uh, getting a degree in modern dance, and which is pretty hard to explain honestly it's it's like one of those categories that's not a category like it's by virtue of what it's not it's not ballet it's not hip-hop it's not you know traditional dance yeah. it's it's basically anyone anything you can think of and an exploration of movement yeah. so would you go travel and um, dance with companies or do teach or workshops or how do you make, what I really want to know is how do you make a living being a modern dancer? Yes. <laughs> you eat beans and rice. <laughs> um, I did all those yeah. things. I, I was able to have, um, I would say probably quarterly work with a company, but in between that, I did freelance projects with other choreographers, and I did some of my own choreography. And I would teach um, at uh, I would teach like dance classes at dance studios, as well as performing arts high schools and uh, dance programs in colleges. And so, just a patchwork of all of that was kind of how I made it work. Oh. And the cool part about it was, it you know, I couldn't be really in one place and piece all of it together. Mm -hmm. So it did involve quite a lot of traveling and I was able to go on a couple tours over to Europe. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, it is cool. Um, oh, I had a really good, well, I had a really good question. I forgot, but I have a really good question that I remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Who has the gnarliest feet, dancers or adventure racers? Man, it's a tie, <laughs> I would say. I I think the like trench foot does not happen to dancers, mm-hmm. but the deformity, like adventure racers ha- cannot hold a candle to the deformity of a dancer's foot. So, ew, that doesn't even sound nice. So No, neither does trench foot. Neither one is good. It, it is. <laughs> and I remembered. Um so so you danced ten years roughly? Yeah. I would say it was it was my childhood dream and so I kinda was working at it through my teenage years and then yeah, about ten years. Okay. Here's my question. Is there a dance that you is do you have a go to memory of a dance in in your career that you like, oh that was that was that's what it was all about. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, don't say yes, yeah. definitely. Tell me about it. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, I, it was this dance, and it was the thing that was the best about it was actually the process of making mm-hmm. it. And I got to be really involved with the sort of collaboration with the choreographer. And the title of the dance was What Can a Body Do? So all of our rehearsals were basically exploring these ideas like, one of us, it was a duet, and so either me or the other dancer or the choreographer would have an idea of like, huh, like, I see this in my head, can we try to explore this and and see if we can do it? And so it was just like this series of physical riddles that we would try to solve and ended up kind of putting them together for an evening-length dance. And it was a really fun process, and it was also really fun to perform because it was all these things that we like figured out we could do. So that sounds interesting. So all right, this question almost relates to adventure racing. <laughs> um, did you, did you dance so you could go through the process or did you go through the process so you could be on stage dancing? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think I actually, I, I liked it mostly for the process because most of it was the process. Mm-hmm. Like like backcountry skiing, like 90% time you're hiking, yeah. 10% you're going down. Same with rehearsals and performance, like pretty similar ratio. And I was always mostly drawn to doing a project by the prospect of who I was going to be in the studio with for all that time. Yeah, yeah I, And that in the bulk of yeah, it. Yeah, you don't want to dance with a jerk exactly yeah okay one more dance question and then probably Mm -hmm. some more because i'm like that where's the most bizarre place you ever gave a uh, performance oh man probably we um we made a dance well so we were on a tour in latvia and we performed there in this beautiful theater but then we also were in the process of making a dance film, which we filmed at an old prison that was no longer, there was an abandoned building left over from the Soviet occupation of Latvia. Okay, that's cool. So I, <laughs> I, where's that at? I want to see that. Oh, man, it's on Vimeo. Is it? I'll send you a link. Yeah. Well, you got to send us a link so we can all see it. Okay. That's, that. I'll see if I can. It might be copyrighted. Anyways, I'll work on okay. it. Okay. That'll be that'll be fun. Um, and just yeah. 
weren't asked, Brent is also a very good dancer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, but did he ever dance in a prison in Latvia? <laughs> Doubtful. <laughs> no. no is the answer to that. <laughs> so, so you're not, um, Brett. You're not like um, I was going to say, guys, but like me, that's like, no, no, no. I, I'll, I'll just sit here. I don't want to dance. No, I, I enjoy dancing. I just don't have uh, – I'm slightly intimidated dancing with Andy because of the background that she has. Uh, well, you're, you know nobody's looking at you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, actually. <laughs> the, the, uh, the focus is generally not on me anytime we're dancing. So, so um, guess, I guess you're there. We'll let you talk a little bit now. So what was, what was your background before you got roped into Primal Quest? <laughs> I uh, I grew up doing kind of multiple sports, did a lot of running and biking, played a lot of soccer growing up, and then uh, did a lot of skiing, basically. Uh, and then leading to Primal Quest, I'd kind of established a pretty good lifestyle as, uh, as, as we like to term it, a seasonal migratory recreational worker. Ski, where ski bumps. I spent my <laughs> Well, summers I was guiding sea kayaking in the San Juans, and winters I was ski patrolling in Utah. And I just bounced back and forth doing that for five years full time. And uh, yeah, that was fantastic. And then from that, like with the running, it kind of naturally progressed, particularly where we live here in Bellingham. It was a pretty natural progression into trail running and then doing some ultras. And the mountain biking around here just sucks you in as well. And so started doing more and more of that stuff and eventually put it all together into racing. Yeah. yeah cool. Um, personal question. How'd you guys meet? <laughs> uh, we actually met, I was, uh, teaching a wilderness medicine class and Annie was one of the students in the wilderness medicine class. Yeah. And after, after the class was over, we had been talking some during the class. Annie was new to the area and we've been talking about trail running. And after the class was over, Annie was like, Oh, we should go trail running sometime. And I was like, yeah, when, when do you want to go? And she was like, how about tonight? And so our first kind of hangout time outside of class was a night trail run. That's a, that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought so. My headlamp died. That was pretty more. I was like, Oh boy. Like, First impression, so underprepared. Uh. Oh yeah, it's like, oh, oh, my headlight died. What do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> well, we were we were back their way, so the answer was keep yeah. running. Yeah. Yep. I, I I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right, we're gonna we're just switch gears because it's the only way I didn't know to do it. Um. Tell me about Cowboy Tough. This is my favorite part because then I can just listen to stories. Oh man, it's if we if we start rambling, reel us in though. I I okay. love rambling, and and quite oh. quite honestly, the people that listen, I think do. They tell me they do. <laughs> so. All right, then we'll just let her yep. flow. Um, Cowboy Tough was my first expedition length race. Um, I'm actually like not, I, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a very experienced adventure racer at all. So, um, yeah, this was my first big one and I honestly was not even expecting to enjoy it at all. Hmm. And 
I I wanted to do it because I think, I mean, I I guess when I say enjoy, I was like not expecting type one fun. I was sort of thinking, well, we'll see how this goes, and when it's over, I will know if I want to do another yeah. one. And I suspect that I might not because it sounds like it might be pretty full of suffering, mm. and I don't know about that. So anyway, I really liked it. Yeah. What? <laughs> so is, I was, okay, I'm gonna. You're not rambling, but. I'm going to stop you. What um, what had you thinking that it was going to be a suffer fest? Was it the length or just not having done it or what? I think yeah. it was just, I mean, there's really no way to crumble the cookie other than it is going to be a suffer fest to an extent. But And I knew that and I'm okay with that. And I do plenty of things that are like that. It was more just kind of the level of unknown. You know, I had never stayed up that many days in a row without sleeping. And I had never, for example, mountain biked that far at once. And or, and I didn't know what my stomach was going to do. And who knows what your body's going to do. It was just the level of unknown. I think that I I was really, I didn't know what to think. So I thought, well, I won't make my hopes too high. So... And now that oh spoiler alert now that having finished it <laughs> what how did you how did how did the experience compare to your expectations? Oh, so here Aaron Rin gets to come back into our story again. So he's the guy from Dart who like mentored Brent's team at their first Primal Quest, and he does a fair bit of training with us because he lives in our area. And he on one of our big training treks before maybe like a month before the race, I was already super nervous about it and we were chatting and he was kind of imparting his wisdom and he's like, well, all I can tell you is the stuff you're worried about, the stuff you think like these are my top five things I'm most worried about, that stuff is going to be absolutely nothing and you will have a top five list of things that you did not even think about at all. And that definitely happened. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, what was number one on the list of things that – you worried about and the things that really happened? I I kind of worried about, like I had sort of a niggling knee injury that I was worried about, and that was not a problem whatsoever, which was awesome. Uh, I didn't really think about what would happen to my tongue. <laughs> oh, yeah. it was terrible. I mean, it's pretty minor in this in the scope of things, but when you have to eat mm-hmm. every hour, it's ugh. Yeah, it's kind of rough. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that was number one. Uh, I think the other one was just, and I sort of knew this was going to happen, but blisters yeah. on my feet. I knew that was going to happen, but I hadn't spent a lot of mental mental energy worrying about it. Anyway, the tongue thing was the weirdest yeah. thing. And the other thing that. Nobody, the dirty little secret of adventure, expedition adventure races is that it takes like three weeks for your hands to get clean. Huh. Maybe I just didn't even notice that. <laughs> well, I've, I've seen that a lot where it's just like, for me, it's not not even comparable. But I, it takes me like a week before like my fingernails are clean. Just, you know, so you're just a clean person. No, I think I have a low standard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So 
What did you guys do when the gun went off? <laughs> we're, and, and, ran pretty fast. Ran as fast as we could. <laughs> did you really, or did you kind of mellow, or did you did you plan on it, or just get sucked in? We ran absolutely as fast as we could. I kind of, I kind of did some calculations in my head, and it was basically, well, we have three miles here that we're running in the prologue without any packs or anything. So that's short. So that'll be over quick. And everybody's going to be going fast anyways. So we'll go fast. Like, we're pretty strong running typically. And then we got seven miles of flat with packs on. So we can run that pretty fast because once we're done with that, we got 20 miles in the pack raft for the legs to recover. So we hit that We hit that initial two legs of, of the race pretty hard. And I think that actually worked out all right for us. Yeah. Well, do you think just get get you going, get you fired up, or did you do you think it really actually made a difference? Like time cuts, you know, did, did that affect the race? You know, two days later, do you think? No, I don't think it affected it two days later. Okay. But it was just like it. I think it just kind of felt good. You know, we'd kind of been. You just happy to go. Yeah, just oh, happy yeah. to move. You know, you've been kind of resting for a couple of days and sitting on a bus for a few hours before the start. And you're just you're ready to go, and so it was kind of nice to just get moving. That's cool. So, what was your game plan before the race started, and and did you follow it? I mean, our biggest things were just trying to to work together as a team. Uh, you know, stay positive, keep moving forward, and roll with the inevitable things going wrong. And I think we stuck to that really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> navigation, you know, how did the treks go? You know, some people, some people nailed all that stuff. Some people struggled. Which camp were you guys in? Uh, the first night was definitely a rough one for us. We, we didn't make some of the adjustments to the maps that we should have. And uh, we definitely got a bit off course we were sitting pretty good that first night about two thirds of the way through and then kind of followed a ridgeline down that paralleled the ridgeline we wanted to be on had similar bearings and everything like that. And, uh, we kind of ended up down in an area we affectionately named the layer of the bear. <laughs> and that, uh, that took us, took us uh, out of commission for a little bit as we tried to sort out where we were and how best to get out of there. Uh, while, keeping our headlamps on the lookout for the bear that was somewhere nearby because we kept seeing initially it was like, it looked like a a nice freshly matted grass where something large had been laying. And then you see some old bear scat and then then you see some new bear scat. (laughs) Bear scat gets, gets more frequent, but smaller and looser. And then like to the point where it's kind of warm and you're like, huh, we are scaring this bear, and it is somewhere very close. And we're, <clears throat> I don't know where we are, but we're just going to keep moving and making lots of noise. So so you said getting, adjusting to the maps. What, what, is it, what does that mean? Not that probably everybody doesn't know, but what does that mean? <laughs> how did it affect, I mean, we know how it affect you, but explain that. Uh, it was just a very large scale on that map. And... Uh, it's hard to see some of the the contours when it's just that big of a scale. And so looking in the dark 
it was really hard to see that. And so we kind of messed up a little bit on that and uh, we kind of paid the consequences there. Trail too, right? Yeah, and some a lot of the trails that, like, you'd look and there'd be a trail on the map and then you'd find a trail that kind of looked like that but then turned out wasn't the actual trail and uh, other trails that you would find in real life weren't on the map at all. Yeah. And so making those adjustments, uh, we had to – we just need to make the, the mental flip. And once we did that, the navigation actually went pretty well for us. That's not bad. Yeah, I mean, I think, especially in the U.S., that it it's almost a black art to knowing which trails are actually on the map and which ones aren't. Yeah, <laughs> it's very true. And I would guess if you were at home, even if it's a new area where you haven't been, you kind of have a feel for that. Because I, I yeah. know here in the Black Hills, you know, if I if I'm in a new area, which there aren't very many anymore, but I, I I can tell if, yeah, this this one's on the map. No, this one isn't. It's just a a thing. I don't know how to explain it. Magic. <laughs> yeah, I I would agree. Yeah. And like you say, around in in your normal neck of the woods, like you know that. Oh, if you go down in this valley, like it's going to be around here, like oh, that valley is going to be totally overgrown. Yeah. So we should probably stick to a ridge line. Yeah. But you get there in in Wyoming and yeah. certain areas, you know, the valley is super easy travel. Yeah, but not always. Yeah. So, um, one of the most important questions of the whole race is: um, Do you guys do shots? Uh, <laughs> we we did not. Yeah. We did not. We hit that. Oh, at, that was at, such a rough time if we got there. <laughs> yeah. That was about 3.30 or 4 in the morning when we hit there, and we were freezing cold, and uh, it just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> did not sound appealing. Yeah. It, um, I've said this before. It's my, it's my only uh, regret of the race is that taking the shots this year was very, very anticlimactic to the way it's been other years. How has it been before? Um, in the prologue. So, oh, uh, dang. When it was in the Bighorns, they actually went into this 150-year-old bar. And and oh. it's within, you know, they could go any way they wanted in the prologue, obviously. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's 20 teams coming in there, and it's this cool old bar. And the first year when it started at South Pass City, they actually were in the bar doing the shots in there at yeah. the pool table. So. Yeah, that's yeah, and in in Douglas, it was in uh, the bar that used to be the brothel. So <laughs> nice. Our bartender was actually sleeping when we got to. The yeah, bar. And it, <laughs> we, had, we had to wake him yeah. up. Yeah, and, and you're not the first. That's not the first time I've heard that. So, <laughs> but yeah, I don't I don't blame him. It's been a while since he'd seen anybody. Yeah. So, did you? How did you feel? About your time, did did you guys have a schedule and did you kind of keep at it? Uh, you know, I think we did pretty well. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. The the first night we definitely got <laughs> that first night getting lost in the layer of the bear that set us off kind of what our initial schedule was. But from there on, like we pretty well stuck to. No, you don't think so? I don't think so. <laughs> so, because we had had an initial spreadsheet where we gave estimates in hours as to how long we thought each leg was going to take. 
based on the sort of parameters that they'd given us on slowest times and fastest times. And because we wanted, and so I was packing the food calories per hour. So it was like very important to, to be familiar with these estimates. Yeah. And I would say most of the legs were longer than we had estimated. And that was an interesting mental challenge for sure. I, we didn't run out of food at all, but we, it's, it's, it's something to grapple with when you're expecting to be out there and you sort of look at your watch when you start and you know that this was the estimate and then that time passes by and you realize you are still going to be out there for quite some time. Hmm. Do you think, do you think um, that that's going to affect next time you expedition race? Do you think you'll, you know, estimate your time a little slower so you don't have to deal with that or does it not matter? Cause you've, you've dealt with the disappointment of not being on time and, and know how to do that. Yeah. I think the only thing it would matter for would be calories. Mm. And we always had like a little emergency stash and I would rather shoot for a more challenging pace and, you know, then just, and go through the mental challenge of being like, whoops, didn't make that one. <laughs> um, no. And then, then to, then to under, basically underperform yeah. to our capacity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You, you're going to go for it. Yeah, exactly. So, I like your attitude. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, do you guys go over Casper Mountain or around? We we oh. went over, and that was epic. <laughs> so we, I don't know if I've talked to anybody that actually went over. So tell us all, ramble on about it. <laughs> that was uh, that was a really interesting experience for us because we were um, we were going along and we were just in front of another team uh, towards the base of the mountain. And we really wanted to stay ahead of them. So we kind of started pushing pretty hard up that thing. And then we look in the distance. It's in the afternoon, uh, late afternoon. We look in the distance and we can see some, some thunderstorms coming. And we're like, oh, we got to get over Casper. Let's just, uh, let's just push hard. And dust. then we were like horses to the barn. Yeah. Like we, like I remember we all actually got a little bit emotional at this one moment because we were like, this is our last climb. Like, Whoa! Yeah, and Dusty had actually uh, had almost like kind of a, a deja vu clairvoyant. He was point. tapping into the paranormal. He envisioned the exact future outcome. He was like, "So I had a dream that we were right here, and what happened in the dream is we biked up here, and the weather got really bad, and it rained on us, and it was really nasty. But then once we got to the top." it was nice as we went into Casper and you know, we're kind of like looking around at the thunderstorms. We were like, coming. Yeah. Dusty, like we kind of think it's going to get bad too, based on these clouds coming. And, but the crazy thing about it was that he did specifically say like, we're on this dirt muddy road right now. And at the top, it's going to change to pavement and we're going to be fine. At least according to my dream. And that exactly that thing happened, which was pretty crazy. Wow. That's a weird, we had <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we had to get to the pavement and we were about two miles shy of the pavement when the thunderstorms hit and uh the the dirt turned to just clay sticking to every possible piece of your bike to the point that the wheels wouldn't turn 
you know, there was multiple inches of clay stuck to everything. And so we had to walk the bikes through the sagebrush along the edge of the road. And you couldn't get the clay off. I mean, it was like each bike weighed like 80 pounds of clay. Uh, yeah, I think um, I've I've experienced that in the day. I understand that. But if you haven't, it, it, it's hard to believe. But, yeah, I mean, it'll like triple the weight of your bike. And there's just nothing yeah. you can do. Yeah, instantaneously. Yeah. And and luckily for we found a giant puddle right where the road went from dirt to, to gravel where you could actually ride again. And so we spent probably 15, 20 minutes just scrubbing all the mud off our bikes in this puddle. Yeah. So and from there on it was you know, it was easy sailing for us and just as Dusty's dream had kind of foretold, like the ride down Casper Mountain was incredible like the sun was setting it was like this beautiful red hues just stunning sunset and we're just flying down that road right into town yeah. sometimes uh sometimes things just work out like that that's yeah yeah <laughs> so um were you, dumb dumb question number 632 were you sad to be done <laughs> oh boy uh, I don't think sad to be done I think we were pretty happy yeah. to be done I would agree with that yeah, yeah. We, we were ready for we were ready for uh, some solid sleep yeah. at that point okay I, it, it's kind of kind of an unfair question but but in some tokens it's like you finish that a race like that that epic and it's kind of like now I gotta deal with back to real life I don't want to Here's the thing, though. We didn't. That I think maybe that's why we weren't sad, huh? or that we were. Yeah, it, it because we like I thought, was thinking through this whole race. I was like, if I survive this, I get to marry Brent oh, in yeah. week. Then we just like had a good sleep, had a few milkshakes, had some pizzas, and then started getting excited for our next thing. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I will. I will. Grant you that getting married is probably more exciting than finishing a race. <laughs> a tough contender yeah. for sure. I mean, it was just a pretty dynamite couple of yeah. months. Um, which took longer to to get over, being hungry or sleepy? I would say sleepy. Yeah. Like yeah. the hunger, you could you could fill that void fairly easily. The the sleep deprivation took a little longer to fully recover from. Yeah. So I've I've actually talked to people that said it was the food, was getting full. So it's interesting that you guys are all different. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, tell me about your wedding. I I did stalk a little bit and see it was outside. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We found this great tree, um, like a giant old growth western red cedar that we that starts as one trunk. It's like it comes out of the earth, the roots go into the earth as one trunk, and then it branches into two, um, sort of midway up. And so it's we it felt like it was a great sort of symbol of the unity yeah. of our partnership, is that we sort of stand with our with our feet in the same ground, but as individuals next to each other, sharing our experience of the world. And so it was this really great grove around this tree. Um, and a bunch of people came. 
and it was great. Yeah, and it was just like a very accessible trail, so our, you know, people of all abilities could, could get into the grove. It wasn't like, you know, it would always be nice to get married in a high place on a mountaintop or something like that, but that's not available to all friends and family. So this was a great um, spot that still felt very wild and also people were able to get to easily. And then it was, we had a big piece of land that people were able to camp on. So we were we kind of were out there for the whole weekend and there was a lot of dancing as you might imagine. <laughs> I, I love dancing so yeah. much. So. I had a great live band that played and it was, yeah, it was a fantastic weekend. That sounds, that sounds very romantic. It was great. Cool. Um, I'd get married yeah. again. Only to break yeah. All right. So you do Cowboy Tough. You get married. So have you been, what have you been doing since you got married? Been racing? Been playing? All those? Well, we, we all of those. Yeah, we got married September 9th. And then uh, the adventure race that I, one of the adventure races I organized was September 30th. So basically got married. Uh, we went on a honeymoon where we did a lot of biking and trail running and poking around. That was awesome. And then uh, crunch time to get ready for the race that I organized. And now we're back at planning and getting back into somewhat real life. Yeah. It's definitely real life at this point. Yeah. 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 So are you guys – from an athletic, you know, this kind of your, well, not athletic, say like racing, this kind of your downtimes, recharge, and then um, what do you think you're going to do next year? We've been discussing that a little bit. <laughs> with with Annie's schedule, uh, Annie's finishing up her uh, physical therapy program. Mm-hmm. She'll be graduating in June, and so she'll be – probably getting a job and that might limit the bigger races. So I think for the two of us, we may be more looking at some of the 24, 36 hour races rather than an expedition length race next summer. Okay. So, well, you know, you're going to have a nice one pretty close to you. I know. <laughs> so. Yeah. Is that before or after graduation though? Unfortunately, it is one week before graduation. So I'm yeah. not sure what things are going to look like at that point, but uh, it's definitely on the radar. That's for sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm suspecting that um, those guys are going to put on a hell of a race. Be my guess. Yes, I would, so, I would agree. So, but that said job, real life, Sometime you guys will do another expedition race, right? I think so. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and we'll um, definitely send a quest team. We might not be on it this year, but we'll probably send a quest team to Primal Quest up in Canada, and and Expedition Oregon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like those two races are like what half a day's drive for you? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty handy. Yeah. How do you not? How do you not go to those? So, um, anything else? Well, yeah. What else? We might tell me. Um, so Brent also has started putting on swim run races, which is this kooky new sport. I don't know if I'm even allowed to talk to talk about this on an adventure racing podcast. No, no, actually, I, I that's a good point because I think 
did you post something about that or where did I see something? But it's new to the US that started over in Sweden and it's this mm -hmm. like um amphibian concept sport. Like it's it's swimming and running, but it's unlike a triathlon in that you don't ever enter like a transition area and change yeah. clothes. You just keep on your running shoes and you keep on your wetsuit and you swim with your shoes on and you run with your wetsuit on and you just traverse the land and the water as, you know, in and out and swimming and running. It's pretty cool sport, and I did yeah. the first one last last uh, spring here in Bellingham, and there's going to be a couple other ones on the calendar, one in Seattle and one in uh, out in the San Juan Islands on Orcas Island. So I'm kind of curious about trying to fit one of those in this year too. Those look, um, well, if you like swimming, if you like water, yeah. and we all know I hate water, <laughs> <laughs> um, they're, they're huge, right? In Europe, I mean, they're they're huge in Europe. They're pretty yeah. pretty new and and smaller here in the U.S., but they're they're definitely gaining traction. And yeah, from a it's it's just a fun and slightly different way to race. Like in some ways, yeah. like adventure racing because uh, it's still team. It's mm -hmm. two, but you have to stay together the whole time, working as a as a unit, just like you would with adventure racing. Uh, it's just in some ways a little more simplistic because you don't have a lot of gear. You know, it's basically yeah. a running wet, uh, a swim run wetsuit and running shoes and swim goggles and you go. And it's, uh, so it's kind of fun in that sense. And it's, it's a different way. It's a different way to travel around, but it's, uh, yeah. it's a super fun way to explore areas. Yeah. Well, and you guys are in obviously a really good area for it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of places in the U.S. might have water, but we don't have the islands. So yeah, that's cool. Um, here's what I don't know about it. It is there any kind of course markings other than like you get in the water here and you get out here? There, there are some course markings. It's still advised. Uh, participants still have a map though. Okay. So there are some yeah. course, course markings, so it's not quite as much navigation as a typical adventure race, but there is, you have a map to kind of help make sure you're headed the right direction. Yeah. So cool. Um, that's, yeah. It, it's, it's, the, it's already the next big thing in Europe, so maybe you guys will make it the next best big thing here. <laughs> well, hopefully it'll be fun, and, and ideally it can even help build adventure racing a bit and get some of the, get some of the triathletes who have been hesitant to do adventure racing. Once yeah. they start doing swim run and hear more about adventure racing though. Yeah. Um, all right. Just a couple more questions maybe I think cause I got a pack. Where are you going? <laughs> I leave Tuesday for two weeks. To, I'm going down to, with a team to cover the Baja 1000. Oh, cool. That's awesome. <laughs> wow. So, and I, I'm, I'm doing the adventure racing. I, all my data cards are cleared and batteries are charged, but that's as far as I've gotten so far. <laughs> it's a good start. <laughs> it's a good start. Um, what's adventure racing like in, in the, the Northwest? I mean, we got uh, – Bend racing, I want to say yoga slackers, bend racing, whatever they're called now. How in Quest, do you guys have a fair amount of racers? Yeah, we're how's the scene? Uh, 
we're trying to build it up. It's it's certainly not as popular as it is in like the the Midwest or the mm-hmm. East Coast, but we've got a pretty good scene and uh, Bend Racing ourselves and another race organization organization called Crank Events, which is based out of Seattle, have created mm-hmm. the Cascadia Race Series. So we have a 10-part adventure race series um, between the three of us with everything from six-hour races up to uh, the 30-hour race that Bend has. And it's a point series with a um, $3,000 cash purse, prize purse for the top three series teams in the um, co-ed division. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's a good That's a good seat. Are you finding... You know, people are coming for the six hour and eventually moving up to the 30. You're definitely seeing a lot of people like kind of start on those shorter ones um, and get excited about adventure racing, wanting to do the the longer ones and kind of working their way up, which has been, it's been fun to see. And, uh, you know, the the terrain that we have out here for putting on these events is pretty phenomenal. Uh, So it's cool to come to the events either here in Bellingham or go out to the San Juans and do one of our events or um, the crank events. They usually do some in and around the Cascades, like just east of the the crest. So it's drier. And then Bend has, you know, some fantastic terrain down there that they put their races on. Yeah. Sounds like, sounds like maybe eventually you you guys will catch up with uh, Missouri. I I I, 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 I think it's great, but I find it funny that the hotbed of adventure racing is the Midwest. It it is it is interesting, and you know, hopefully, hopefully we can get some of those Midwesterners to come out here. Uh, Yeah, I'm actually a transplanted Midwesterner. I was born in Iowa, but grew up out this way, and have spent a lot of time back in the Midwest seeing family, and uh, it's it's pretty amazing to come out here and play around in, in the Cascades. Yeah, and, and flatlands. Yeah, and everybody knows I made fun of Nars being in Iowa City, but it was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. We did as well. They did. It was a great race. How cool it was. Yeah. Good to hear. Yep. Exactly. So, okay, I'm done. Are you done? I think we're good. Thank you, cool so for the time. Yeah, yep. it'd be good to speak the, with you. Yeah, this was for. Behind the scenes, this is one of those that took us about six or seven or twenty. Chant. Uh, how about this type? No, that. How about? And then we were going to do it this morning, and it didn't work out. I had to. I had to go help my mom move her car up to her cabin. <laughs> that is a legit, that is a legit so, obligation. Yeah. Yeah, she puts her uh, Miata in the shed at the cabin, and she's oh like, "I don't want to drive it up there." So. <laughs> That was a last-minute thing. So thanks for uh, rescheduling tonight, and it was great. Yeah, thank you, Randy, and have fun in Mexico. You know what? I am. Thanks. Awesome. (laughs) Great talking with Randy. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Bye. like you might have heard this before. <laughs> I know I have. That's because this song is called Alice's Restaurant. 
about Alice and the restaurant. But Alice's restaurant was never the name of a restaurant. That was always the name of the song, which is why I still call it Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Well, it all started about 40 Thanksgivings ago. Forty years ago on Thanksgiving, when my friend and I decided to go up and visit Alice at the restaurant. But Alice didn't used to live in the restaurant. She used to live in the church nearby the restaurant, in the bell tower, with her husband Ray and of the dog. And living in the bell tower like that, they used to have a lot of room downstairs where the pews used to be. And seeing as how they took out all of the pews and having all that room, they decided that they didn't have to take out their garbage for a long time. We got up there, found the place was filled with garbage, and we decided it'd be a friendly gesture for us to take the garbage down to the town dump. So we took the half a ton of garbage, put it in the back of a red VW microbus, took shovels and rakes and implements of destruction and headed on toward the town dump. We got there. There was a sign, a chain across the road saying, Closed on Thanksgiving. And we had never heard of a dump being closed on Thanksgiving before. So with tears in our eyes, we drove off into the sunset, looking for another place to put the garbage. And we didn't find one till we come to a side road and off of the side of the side road there was a 15-foot cliff and at the bottom of the cliff there was another pile of garbage and we decided that one big pile would be better than two little ones and rather than bring that one up we decided to throw ours down and that's what we did drove back to the church had a thanksgiving dinner that couldn't be beat went to sleep and didn't get up until the next morning when we got a phone call from officer Roby. He said, kid, uh, we found your name on an envelope at the bottom of a half a ton of garbage. Wanted to know if you had any information about it. And I said, yes, sir, Officer Roby. I cannot tell a lie. I, I put that envelope under that garbage. So after talking to Obi for about 45 minutes on the telephone that we finally arrived at the truth of the matter, and Obi said we had to go down, pick up the garbage. We also had to go down and talk to him at the police officer station. Now, friends, there was only one of two things that Obi could have done at the police officer station. And the first thing was he could have given us a medal for being so brave and honest over the telephone, which wasn't very likely. We didn't expect it. And, of course, the other possibility was that well, he could have bawled us out and told us never to be seen driving garbage around the vicinity again, which is what we expected. But when we got to the police officer station, there was a third possibility that we hadn't counted on, and we was both immediately arrested, handcuffed. And I said, Obi, 
I don't think I can pick up the garbage with these handcuffs on. He said, shut up, kid. Get in the back of the patrol car. And we sat in the back of the patrol car and drove to the, quote, scene of the crime, unquote. Now, friends, I want to tell you about the town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where this was happening. They got three stop signs, two police officers, and one police car. But when we got to the scene of the crime, there was five police officers and three police cars being the biggest crime of the last 50 years, and everybody wanted to get in the newspaper story about it. And they was using up all kinds of cop equipment they had hanging around the police officer station. They was taking plaster tire tracks, footprints, dog-smelling prints, they took 27 8 by 10 colored glossy pictures with circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one explaining what each one was to be used as evidence against us. They took pictures of the approach, the getaway, the northwest corner, the southwest corner, and that's not to mention the aerial photography. When it was after the ordeal, we went back to the jail. Obi said he was going to put us in a cell. He said, kid, I'm going to put you in the cell. Give me a wallet and your belt. And I said, Obi, I can understand you want my wallet, so I don't have any money to spend in the cell. But what do you want my belt for? He said, kid, we don't want any hanging. And I said, Obi, did you think I was going to hang myself for littering? Obi said he was making sure, and friends Obi was, because he took out the toilet seat so I couldn't hit myself over the head and drown. Took out the toilet paper so I couldn't bend the bars, roll the toilet paper out the window, slide down the roll, having to skate and get away. Obi was making sure, all right, and it was about four or five hours later that Alice... Remember, Alice? This is still the song about Alice... She combined with a few nasty words to Obi on the side. She bailed us out of jail. We went back to the church, had another Thanksgiving dinner that couldn't be beat. Went to sleep and didn't get up until the next morning when we all had to go to court. We walked in, sat down. Obi come in with the 27 8 by 10 colored glossy pictures with the circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one's plane and what each one was to be used as evidence against us and he sat down. A man come in, he said, all rise, and we stood up and Obi stood up with the 27 8 by 10 colored glossy pictures and the judge walked in with a CNI dog. We sat down. Obi looked at the CNI dog, and then at the 27 8 by 10 color glossy pictures with the circles and arrows, and looked at the CNI dog. And Obi began to cry, because Obi came to the realization that this was a typical case of American blind justice. And there's no way the judge was going to look at the 27 8 by 10 color bell, it didn't matter. Because <laughs> we was fined $25 each, and we had to pick up the garbage in the snow. Of course, that's not what I come to talk about or nothing. Just thought I'd mention it. <laughs> thought I'd talk a little bit about the draft. Now, a lot of people think that's just from years ago. But tell that to the guys who've been called back after all that time. <laughs> yep. 
Not only that, they still got that building over in New York City and others like it all across America. And that's where you used to have to go in, get injected, inspected, detected, infected, neglected, and selected. And I remember I had to go in there one morning a long time ago for my physical examination. So I got good and drunk the night before. Because I wanted to feel my best when I went in that morning. I mean, I wanted to feel, I wanted to look, I wanted to be like the all-American kid. When I went in that morning, I was hung down, I was brung down, I was hung up, I was all kinds of mean, nasty, ugly-looking things. I walked in, I sat down. They gave me a piece of paper, said, kid, see the psychiatrist, room 604. I went in there, I, I said, shrink, I, I want to kill. Yeah, I, I want to kill. Want to see blood and gore and guts and veins and matizzy dead bird bodies? I mean, kill, kill. And I started jumping up and down, young and kill, kill. And he started jumping up and down with me. And we was both jumping up and down, young and kill, 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 kill. Till the sergeant come over, pinned a medal on me, sent me down the hall saying, you're our boy. I didn't feel real good about it. But I proceeded on down the hall, getting more injections, inspections, and all kinds of stuff that they was doing to me at the thing there. And I was there for two, three, four, five hours. I was there for a long time, going through all kinds of mean, nasty, ugly things. They was inspecting, injecting every single part of me. And they was leaving no parts untouched. But I proceeded through until I finally come to see the very last man. I walked up, I said, what do you want to see me about? He said, kid, we only have one more question. Have you ever been arrested? I told him the story of the Alice's Restaurant Massacre with five-part harmony boom orchestration. He stopped me right there. He said, kid, did you go to court? I told him the story of the 27 8 by 10 colored glossy pictures with the circles and arrows. He stopped me again. He said, kid, I want you to go over, sit down on that bench that says Group W. Now, kid. Group W. Group W was where they used to put you if you might not have been moral enough to join the army. <laughs> After committing your special crime, there was all kinds of mean, nasty, ugly-looking people on the bench. I mean, there was mother rapers, father stabbers, father rapers. There was father rapers sitting there on the bench next to me. I mean, these was mean, nasty, ugly, horrible, crime-fighting guys. And the meanest, ugliest, nastiest, the meanest father raper of them all was coming over to me, and he sat down next to me and said, Kid, what'd you get? I said, I didn't get nothing. I had to pay $25 and pick up the garbage. 
He said, kid, what was you arrested for? I said, littering. And they all moved away from me on the bench there. Until I said, and creating a nuisance. <laughs> and then they all come back and shook my hand. We had a great time on the bench talking about crime, mother stabbing, father raping, who's smoking cigarettes, all kinds of stuff, having a good time. Till the sergeant come over. He had some paper in his hand. He held it up. He went like this. He said, Kids, this piece of paper got 37 words, so then set fast. One more time, the crime, detail the crime. He got to say, pretend, tune about the crime. The rest of the officer's name, kind of thing, got to say it. He talked for 45 minutes, and nobody understood a word he said. But we had fun filling out the forms and playing with the pencils on the bench. I wrote down the massacre like I was supposed to, and I put down my pencil. Turned over the piece of paper. And there on the other side of that piece of paper, away from everything else on the other side, I mean underlined and capitalized, read the following words. Kid, have you rehabilitated yourself? I went over to the sergeant. I said, Sergeant, you got a lot of gall to ask me if I've rehabilitated myself. I mean, I'm sitting here on the Group W bench. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sitting here on the Group W bench because you want to know if I'm moral enough to join the Army, burn women, kids, houses, children, villages after being a litter bug. He said, kid, we don't like your kind. We're going to send your fingerprints off to Washington. And friends, somewhere in Washington, enshrined in a little folder, is a study in black and white of my fingerprints. <laughs> the only reason I'm singing you the song tonight is because you may know somebody in a similar situation sometime. <laughs> I mean, even some of you can be in something like this sometime sooner than you're sitting here thinking about right now. If you ever find yourself in something like that, you don't know what to do. Well, there may be only one thing you can do. Actually, there may not be anything you can do. <laughs> but there's something you can try. And that's to be wherever it is you're supposed to be. I mean, you go in there, you sit down, you wait your turn. And when you get a chance, you stand up, you go something like this, you say, Oh, shrink! Excuse me, man, but uh, you can get anything you want. At Alice's restaurant and walk out. I mean, imagine one person, even today, walking in, singing some Alice's restaurant, walking out. They're going to say, hey, that guy's 40 years too late. Get that guy out of here. <laughs> imagine two of them walking in, hand in hand, <laughs> singing in harmony. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the policy is, but I guess if you tell them, you ain't going. <laughs> So, imagine 50, maybe 50 people a day going in, singing some Alice's Restaurant, walking out. Friends, they might think it's a movement. And most of them be too young to know what a movement was. <laughs> but that's what it was. It was the Alice's Restaurant Anti-Massacre Movement. That's what it was, that's what it is, and I guess that's what it's always going to be. And all you've got to do to join is to sing it with me as it comes around again on the guitar. With feeling. 
You can't get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can't get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's the roundabout, just a half a mile from the railroad track. You can't start singing louder just at the end. You would have thought after all this time, you would have learned by now. You want to end war and stuff, you've got to learn to sing loud all the time so people can hear you. <laughs> now, I, I know this is a long song. Believe me. But it could be longer. I'm still not proud or tired. Of course, I remember when I was a little kid, I started writing my songs. My dad took me aside one time and said, Arlo, you know, if you can't be great, it's better to be long. Still thinking about that. <laughs> anyway, when it comes around again, maybe you can help me out. Here it comes. You can't get anything that's better at Alice's Rest, except in Alice. You can't get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. You can't get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Da -da 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 -da. At Alice's Restaurant. Thank you so much.